Let's turn together to the New Testament and to the first letter of Peter and chapter number 1. First Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read the first two verses. First Peter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so on. As we turn to think of this letter, we see that the letter is addressed to certain readers or perhaps certain hearers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Today we would be thinking of a letter that was going to go to modern Turkey. And all of these places were places in what was then Asia Minor. And if we can think of our postman or postlady delivering the mail, we would go in some kind of order through all of the homes. So this letter was taken, delivered to these different places on a circular route so that the message of Peter got to all of these churches. And when we think of the letter going to all of these people, we are thinking of a letter that is going to these people for a particular purpose. And the purpose was to encourage those who are Christians to continue to remain loyal and faithful to the Lord Jesus. Peter was king that they would continue loyal to Jesus and standing fast in the faith. And that was at risk because of the way in which they were challenged by the world around them. And as we read through the letter, we see the different ways in which Peter engages with these challenges. And he does so by telling them something about the Christian life itself. He does so by focusing on, on the teaching about God and about Jesus Christ and about the work of the Holy Spirit. He does so also by reminding them of the history of salvation and the goal of salvation. So he, he covers all of the big ideas, he covers all of the big questions, and he comes to the people with a heart that is full of care for them. And as we study the letter, we want to consider the theme of the letter as the Christian's faithfulness to Christ in a hostile world. And today, in these first two verses, we're going to think of the Christian's Providence, God's plan, and God's purpose. I want to think first of all of providence. Providence is important in the sense of knowing where we are on God's timeline, where we are in our world. And we see that in this letter we understand the providence of these people, first of all, from the contact that Peter makes with them. And when we see the way in which Peter introduces himself, he is the apostle of Jesus Christ. And so when 
they receive this letter, they are to receive it not so much as a letter from Peter, but they are going to receive it as a letter from Peter, who is an apostle, who is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And so, undersigning this whole letter is the signature of the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one whom we see calling Peter and the other apostles, calling Simon, son of John, giving him this new name Peter, establishing him as an apostle, and sending them with the other apostles out with the message of the gospel so that they would continue the work of the Lord Jesus. And we saw the way in which Peter was restored to that place of feeding sheep and feeding lambs, of, of teaching the church of, of Jesus in the world. He was restored to that position in John chapter 21. And then in Acts chapter 2, he is the one who stands up and who proclaims the gospel for the first time after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So we have providence, providence and contact. And every time we ourselves come face to face with the word of God, it is a contact from Jesus himself where he comes to place his hand upon our hearts, our minds, our lives in our own context, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities. It is the hand of the Lord Jesus on our lives. And moving from providence and contact, there is providence and context. Where do we find the readers, the hearers of this letter? And we see that they are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They are exiles. It's a really interesting word. They are strangers in a strange place. They have come from somewhere, from their native land, and they have come now to settle down in a different place, in a different culture, with different customs and with different habits. They are exiles. And there are two ways in which we can think of the hearers as exiles and think of ourselves as exiles. First of all, the Bible makes it clear, as Paul does in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. This world is not the home of the family of God. They are strangers here. They are exiled here. Just as the people of God in the Old Testament were exiled from Jerusalem to be in Babylon, so today, as the people of God, we are not in heaven. We are exiled in this world. And what we find around us in the world is so very different to what we will find and do find in heaven. And so often we, as the people of God, we do feel that that's exactly what we are. This is a strange place. It's a strange place for the people of God to live in. And we sense more and more that we do belong to the family of God and the family home of God. 
There is that sense of being away from home. But the second sense in which we are to understand them as exiles and ourselves as exiles is that they are in a place where they are confronted with a completely different culture. It's a question of sociology. It's a question of the people around and the practices. And that's what Peter will engage with here. Engaging with the people of God in a world that has its pagan practices that are so often contrary to and opposite to the very practices and customs of the kingdom of God. And exiles they surely are in that case. And for ourselves, how much we are so aware of being exiles in that sense. How much our Christian worldview, how much our faith comes face to face so often with a secular philosophy, with a humanistic mindset, that the very principles that we have in the Word of God are not only challenged but undermined and pushed to the side at, at because of the advancement of the powerful philosophies of our age. And we are left in the world as those who are the people of God, seeking to remain loyal to the Lord Jesus. And because of these contrary things, life so often seems to be like a collision course. There is a car crash waiting to happen because we cannot compromise the things of our faith to the things or with the things of this world. And we are challenged day by day to a lesser or to a greater extent because we are the children of God, because we have the values of the kingdom of God and these values simply are not shared by so many in society around us. And in the last two weeks, we could say that that the the philosophy of the age has turned down its volume and has allowed the, the message of the Bible to come across our whole nation. And we think of that last Monday, the way in which everything else is turned off and we're face to face with a story, with a service, where the word of God is repeated in different ways and sung in different ways and that going out to the whole of our nation. But we know that that's not the reality in which we live our lives. We know that's not our whole providence. We know that things are so very different. We are exiles. We think of the need of, of having a project leader to look at materials that our children are being taught in school, which are considered to be inappropriate. All of these things happening around us, reminding us that there is a philosophy which is completely contrary to the teaching of the Word of God and the things that are for our eternal good and our good in this world. Exiles. Do you feel that there is that great divide 
do you feel sometimes that you have these car crashes? And do you feel sometimes that you need to be rescued from these moments? And the only person that can do so is the God of the Bible through the teaching of the Bible and through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. They are exiles. But if they were just exiles, that's not fully the assurance that they need. They are elect exiles. And when Peter speaks about election, he's the Peter who knows that Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. He is a Peter who, you will see, understands the whole of the Old Testament, where election is at the very center of the way in which God chooses his people. And Peter wants his, his hearers to understand that although they feel like exiles throughout the whole of modern Turkey, throughout the whole of Asia Minor, although they feel like exiles there, they are to remember that they are elect exiles. That God has chosen them as he chose Abraham, as he chose the children of Israel, as he chose David as king, as he chose all of the prophets, as he chose his own son, my servant. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. God has elected them in the same way that he has elected his own son. There is that heavenly connection. And today we want to, to capture this picture and this message of our own context and of our own providence. That we are not here on our own. And that the very thing that is happening to us in the sense of feeling like exiles is because God has chosen us out of the society in which we live to be his own people. And so instead of being exiles being a word of discouragement because we are elect exiles it's the means of encouragement it's being encouraged today that we are different and we think differently and we behave differently because God has chosen us and that, that raises the bar in so many ways for all of us here today. That that's where we are in life. That the finger, the hand of the Lord Jesus is upon us. And because of that, we are where we are, we are who we are, and we go through the things that we do go through. The providence. Secondly, we want to see that there is a plan. We want to know that our lives, chaotic as they seem from time to time, we want to know that there is no chaos with the God who has elected us. And we see that Peter goes on in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in the sanctification of the Spirit. According to. Regularly when I see these two words in the Bible, one word in the Greek, they they remind me that what happens here happens because of something decided at a higher level. It's motion coming down from the top. It's the kind of top down that comes from a plan that has been planned at a higher level and that's implemented at a lower level. And we see here that Peter wants to draw our attention to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, the plan according to which God is working in the world is a plan that he himself has initiated and he has initiated because of his foreknowledge. It's another interesting word. It's an important word in our understanding of God and our understanding of election. We know something. We all know something. We know something of the Bible. We know. But foreknowledge is to know beforehand. It's quite simple. But there is a qualifier. There's something that we do understand along with that. Not only does God have knowledge beforehand but he doesn't have knowledge beforehand as a bystander who watches all of this happening it's not like that at all he has foreknowledge for the simple reason that he has foreordained in other words he has planned decreed everything that's going to come to pass and that's why he foreknows it's not based on external information. It's based on the fact that he is here and that he is writing the plan. He is determining every step that's going to happen from the beginning of his creation until the end of the Bible when we have the new heavens and the new earth. And that whole plan is important for the way in which we see the major steps in God's redemption of his people from Genesis 3 to Genesis 15 through to Genesis 22 right down to the the birth of Jesus the death of Jesus the resurrection of Jesus and we read in Acts chapter 2 from the words of the same Peter that the cross was according to the foreknowledge and the determined counsel of God it's all in the plan. But Peter wants his readers to take all of that that's true about the Lord Jesus to bring it down to an everyday level and to bring it down into their own experience. And that's so reassuring for them. Here they are in in Pontus and Galatia and so on. Here they are and there's chaos around them. They're suffering from the culture, the society in which they are living. But they need to understand that all of that suffering itself, as well as their election, is part of the eternal plan of God. Every hair of your head is numbered, said Jesus. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart 
from the plan of God. A plan in all of its minute detail. And when the plan is put in place by God, he is God the Father. He is not simply a person who intellectually has the ability to put this plan in place. But he is emotionally involved with everything that he sees in the plan and with everyone that he does have in the plan. He is God the Father. And that introduces not just order and purposeful action day by day, but also it brings before our minds the very love of God, the initiative of God the Father. And how easy it is for us to forget this basic truth about our God that he has foreknowledge because he has foreordained. And as soon as something goes wrong, we, we question everything about where we are. We question everything about God himself. Let's have this check on our lives every day that God has a plan and that he is working it out in its detail in our everyday lives. And if the initiative for the plan rests with the loving God who is our Father, the implementation of the plan is dependent upon God the Holy Spirit. It's so easy for us sometimes to make our plans. Everything looks so good on paper. But so many good intentions and, and so many good plans remained on the shelf gathering dust and were never seen to be put in place or action. But here we have the reminder of the security of knowing that if the plan depends on God initiating it, that it also depends on God to implement it in the sanctification of the Spirit. The sanctification. It's a word that is derived from the word to be holy. It's an important word because God is holy. It's an important word because he requires his people to be holy. It's an important word because this Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And so there is the need that if you and I are not holy or are unholy or are the opposite of holy, are sinful, then there must be a radical change if we are going to be part of God's plan and if we are going to be those in whom God is working day by day. The implementation of the plan, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And when we read the way in which God gives direction to his people in the Old Testament, for example, in the building of the tabernacle, 
in the book of Exodus and in establishing Aaron as high priest in the tabernacle, Aaron was going to be consecrated, sanctified, to serve God in the tabernacle as priest. In other words, he was going to be taken out from amongst the people, set apart for the service of God, and so to minister in the tabernacle. And at that level, there is no internal change suggested, although it may be in the blessing itself, but it's simply taken from one place and placing in another. And placing in another in order for that service, that work to begin. And so here Peter is telling them that they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. They are taken out, taken out of the ungodly society, the pagan world around them. They are taken out of there and they are placed in the kingdom of heaven. And that is through the work through the agency of the Holy Spirit alone. There is no other explanation for it. They could not do it themselves. They could not bring about that change of location before God, that change of standing before God by themselves. It is all down to the work of the Holy Spirit. It is, says Jesus, the Spirit that gives life. And today, it is only the Spirit of God that stirs up in our hearts any thought after God, any desire for the Lord Jesus. It simply does not happen naturally. It's the exclusive ministry of the Holy Spirit that stirs up our hearts in that way. To, to, to reach out for God. That opens our minds to understand the truth of God. That, that gives to us a heart that is ready to receive the grace of God and the truth of God in such a way as to change our lives. And at that point, the change has already begun. It's a change in status. It's a change in location. It's the beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit. How reassuring was that for them? In this alien society in which they were living, that God was at work, not just around them, but that God was at work in them to will, to do of his good pleasure, to stir up their hearts in love for him and in response to the gospel. And I guess the simplest summary is found in the statement of Jesus to Nicodemus, you must be born again. There is no other way, no other explanation and no other method that God uses to implement his plan and his spirit to bring us alive in our hearts. The providence, the plan, and finally, the purpose. For 
That's a small word, but it's the fodder of purpose. Why did God plan all of this? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And there are two sides to God's purpose that we have here in, in the experience of the children of God. And the first of these is the obedience of faith. It's doing the word of God. If you love me, said Jesus, you will keep my commandments. And as soon as God has implemented his plan in our lives personally, the immediate fruit of that is the faith through which we give obedience to his word. And Paul himself from, from time to time speaks about the way in which God is working in people's hearts. For example, in Romans 16, he speaks of the revelation of the mystery that was hidden in ages past, made known to us all to bring about the obedience of faith. Show me someone in whom the Spirit of God has worked. Show me someone who stands in God's plan. And you will find someone who is obedient to the word of God. And through this letter, it's that obedience that will be challenged in different ways. And where, where it is through that obedience is the immediate fruit of faith in our hearts. It is also something that is often so quickly snuffed out because of where we live as elect exiles in the world. The purpose of obedience. The obedience that shows that the election is real. That shows that the new life claimed is real. The obedience of faith. And along with that there is the inclusion in the family of God for the sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. We can borrow a practice from the Old Testament and we read in Exodus chapter 24 where the people of God are gathered in the presence of God and where Moses reads out the book of the covenant and as soon as he has finished reading the book the people say in harmony with one accord all that the Lord God has said we will do. It's the obedience. And then we read that Moses who had taken the sacrifice and taken the blood of the sacrifice we see that he sprinkled the blood first of all towards God then the rest of the blood he sprinkled on the people and so that now there was a union between God and this people through the blood of the sacrifice and that marked their, their entrance into a new relationship with him a new covenant relationship with God and so when we today when, when we come to to think of the obedience of faith and the purpose of God. 
we see this tremendous action through which by the blood of Jesus with which he has gone into the presence of God having worked out redemption for us is now applied to us by the Holy Spirit in our relationship with the Lord Jesus and we are the children of the Heavenly Father we are the children of the new covenant that is a new relationship with God and is based completely on the sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross. And that is one of the reasons why Jesus said with regard to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so today we, we see the way in which Peter reassured his hearers in their context, in their providence, by reminding them of the plan of God the Father, the setting apart of God the Holy Spirit, the redeeming death of God the Son, and in that way, drawing all the strands of who they are as the people of God to be anchored firmly in God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that today we're not dependent upon the person next to us, however good they are. We're not dependent on, on any other Christian or any other elder or any other minister. We're not dependent on anyone. What we are is anchored in the eternal God who changes not. And that's our security. And may God help us to reflect on, on Peter's introduction to his readers and hearers. Let ourselves be encouraged where we are, the challenges that we face, to remain loyal and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the words that he has left us in the whole of the word of God, the Bible. May God bless his words. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we are thankful to you for all that you have put into place that gives structure to life in this world, a structure that is so often hidden on our minds and upon our eyes. But we are thankful that the structure is yours and the plan is yours and the implementation is yours. And we pray that you will give to us all faith in your name that we may know grace and strength day by day to continue to live for you in this world in which we live. So hear our prayer, accept our thanks and our mercy for Jesus' sake. Amen.